Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown, and my guest today is not only a skilled clinician, he's also an accomplished musician, so you'll have to check that out on his website. Travis Atkinson has worked in behavioral health services for the past 20 years as a clinician, trainer, supervisor, advocate, and consultant. He has presented on SAMHSA panels around crisis systems and crisis bed registries, researched best practices in emergency behavioral health care, and has spoken at national behavioral health conferences on functional crisis systems and behavioral health workforce challenges. Since 2015, he has worked at TBD Solutions, and he was instrumental in authoring the Crisis Residential Best Practices Handbook in 2018. He is the president of the Crisis Residential Association and former Crisis Services Committee Chair for the American Association of Suicidology. He received his B.A. from the University of Michigan and his master's degree from National Lewis University. Travis lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan with his wife and three daughters. Travis dreams with writing and rocking with the likes of James Taylor and Huey Lewis in the News. Please join me in welcoming Travis Atkinson. Hey, Travis, how are you? Hi, Leah. I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. Well, I just wanted to start with, first of all, I heard you speak at a suicide prevention conference and your topic was so good. I think it's something that is of interest to pediatricians, but we often don't think about it, and that's crisis intervention. And also, you sang a beautiful song that brought me to tears, so we probably won't have time for you to sing today, but (laughs) I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes to your, your music, so it was awesome. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be at that conference. That was my first time there, and I always, anybody who's working in crisis or working in mental health services is kind of my people or my tribe. And so it's just, it's a pleasure to connect with people in that way. Yeah. Well, I, again, I appreciate the willingness to do this. So just before we get started, can you tell listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into doing crisis work? Certainly. I've been working in the behavioral health field for close to 20 years. I started off working in case management services in the suburbs of Chicago and got my master's degree in counseling, moved back West Michigan, which is where I'm from, and uh, thought that I wanted to be an outpatient therapist and tried to find those jobs. And they require a lot of times experience or a full licensure and ended up at a job in a crisis home, which I'd never heard of or never had been exposed to. Really enjoyed the work. Um, Did that work for another five or six years, did some work in the clinical realm as well as a clinical supervisor at a psychiatric hospital. And then I became a behavioral health consultant about seven years ago. Consulting was not something that I necessarily aspired to. I wasn't going to show and tell or career day at school growing up saying, yeah, I want to be a mental health consultant. 
but feel very fortunate for the opportunity that's brought me where I kind of have exchanged or kind of made a wager that said, instead of helping one person at a time, I may be able to help an entire community at a time through bringing just strong ideas in treating people in a really humane way and infusing elements of exceptional customer service into the way that we treat people in psychiatric emergencies, emotional distress, mental health crisis. And so I've been been very fortunate on this journey to, to do what I do and to meet a lot of interesting people along the way and do work really that aligns very well with my values, which are centered around human rights and the inherent value that we all have as people and how to match up supreme need of a mental health crisis with supreme support. And I'm not afraid to say it. I would say with love, with some type of agape, where we care about people, whether we know them or not, and and we try to be the most helpful to them. I love that. That's so beautiful. And it's totally okay to have love in the mix. I think that makes all the difference. And we're that we brought this philosophy and value to so many things, the world might be a kinder place, which I think we are desperately in need of agape. So bring it on. Great. Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about managing crises, because I think in pediatrics, we're better embarking on kind of addressing mental health conditions and concerns in primary care. And they're often not an acute crisis right there. But a lot of our patients do experience crises, mostly end up in the emergency room because we don't have really dedicated outpatient urgent crisis type centers, although I think that's coming. They go to the emergency room. Some disposition is made, mostly not in patient psychiatry. And then they go out. And so I just want to talk a little bit about in those circumstances, often, especially if it's a, a patient with Medicaid or uninsured, the community mental health crisis person may make some dispositions about treatment and arrangements. So maybe you could walk us through that a little bit, because I think oftentimes we're under the impression that if I send a patient to the emergency room, they're going to get admitted to a hospital and I've done my job. And that is not usually the case. They're often, at least in my experience, discharged and come back and the problem still exists. So maybe you can help us with that a little bit. Sure. To understand what is possible and what would be the best options for youth, a child who's in a mental health crisis, I think it's important to understand what historically has been available and the systems that we've built to respond to people who are in a medical crisis. In some of my presentations, I will start off with some phrases and ask people to complete those phrases. And so I'll say, stop, drop, and then the audience will say, and roll. Roll. Yeah, exactly. Or a stitch in time, and then they say, saves nine. Or in Michigan, for some of your listeners who are from Michigan, I'll say, pass on a bower, which is a term for euchre, which is a card game we have. I say, pass on a bower, they say, lose for an hour. And then I put up a phrase that says, um, if this is an emergency, dot, dot, dot. And then everybody says, hang up or dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency room. And I, of course, give some context to thinking about calling your doctor or another medical professional. But the problem 
is that we have created a safety net for medical emergencies that is also trying to treat psychiatric emergencies. And it wasn't built that way. So whether it's 911 or your law enforcement dispatch or your EMS or your emergency department, any of those things prior to a psychiatric hospital were not designed to treat people in behavioral health emergencies. Now, the safety net system takes a lot of pride in that identity as being the place where people can go. But I have noticed in a number of emergency departments or in interviews with doctors that they do not have a proclivity or a passion for serving people in behavioral health emergencies by and large. And so the first step to having a crisis system that works for kids is to have people who want to see kids and want to serve and help kids who are in a behavioral health emergency. So the ways that you change or that we've seen communities reform some of that safety net to be catered to people with behavioral health emergencies, first of all, is with a dedicated mental health crisis line. These are sometimes called suicide prevention hotlines. Some of your listeners may be privy to the concept of 988, which is a three-digit hotline that just came on board in July of 2022. And it is it has replaced the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is a network of crisis call centers across the country to help people who are experiencing emotional distress, mental health crisis, or who are experiencing thoughts of completing suicide. Then you have mobile crisis teams, which are generally groups of clinicians or perhaps a master's level or licensed clinician along with a bachelor's level clinician, let's say such as a bachelor's level social worker. They are paired up and they go out and respond in the community to people who are experiencing a mental health crisis. So instead of that family having to go to the emergency department, two clinicians might come to their house or to the school or to the Kroger or the Albertsons or you pick the grocery store, wherever the crisis is happening. Because what we found through these teams is that if that mobile crisis team can get out and meet with that family and meet with that youth, there's an 80% chance that they can de-escalate them from having to go to the psychiatric hospital or the emergency department. Now, if that same team meets with the child and the family in the emergency department, the numbers flip and there's only a 20% chance that they can divert them from the psychiatric hospital. Now, some of your listeners might be wondering, why would we want to divert someone from a psychiatric hospital? That is a helpful part of treatment. Well, that's what we've all come to believe for decades, that if somebody needs services more intensive than an outpatient setting, then they must go to an inpatient psychiatric hospital. The paradigm shift as you start to look at replacing or modifying these treatment interventions within the safety net is that the psychiatric hospital becomes the last choice on, we'll say on the train stop here, and that you would try other options to preserve a child's choice and agency and freedom whenever possible. I believe it was Abraham Maslow who said, when you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so if you only have a psychiatric hospital in your treatment continuum, then everybody who is in distress that an outpatient therapy appointment will not resolve, everybody in distress looks like they're eligible for inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. 
And that creates a challenge because, because everybody doesn't necessarily need that level of care. They don't need to go behind a locked door. They don't need to have their choices taken away. Okay. So we've got two of those services. Yeah. Leah looks like I'm long winded. So I no, 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 it's good stuff. And I, I think, I think what you're saying is really important because honestly, I mean, if you call any therapist's office, I mean, what they say is if this is an emergency, please present yourself to the nearest emergency room. I mean, and that's Mm -hmm. verbatim and you're exactly right. Most emergency rooms, unless it's a psychiatric emergency room are not designed for this care. They don't have the staff. They don't have programming. And yet there's not very many other options. I love mobile crisis. And in our area, our mobile crisis unit for youth will go to the homes, the school. They've come to my office before and serve all patients with all payers. Now, I know that varies. Some places, they only serve Medicaid and uninsured. The time to get there may vary. I know in our upper peninsula, it's really rural. It may t- I think it can take up to two hours. In our area, I think the the wait is 45 minutes, although I think about an emergency room wait can be a long time too. But <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you'd know the answer to this. Our mobile crisis, is that kind of intervention, is that available nationally or is it very state by state, county by county? Great question. There are approximately 500 mobile crisis teams across the country. So that's Um, a no. Well, yeah, most of them have county or multi-county jurisdictions. So I would say that they're not available in every community, but there are certainly a lot of flavors about uh, of mobile crisis teams. And the one that is most relevant to kids is called MRSS mobile response and stabilization services. I have spoken to Dr. Liz Manley from the University of Maryland, who is integral in creating the test model. And what she told me was that they intentionally kept the word crisis out of the name of the service because they don't want families feeling like they have to subjectively assess their problem, their challenge and determine whether it's truly a crisis or not. Mm. And so they're more likely to get families to call when they don't na- they don't force them to say are you meeting criteria for a crisis in their own heads. Um, sure. But and what's beautiful about that model is that S, which is most popular in states like New Jersey and Oklahoma and Nevada, SS will also provide follow-up support from those same teams, those clinicians, those case managers, sometimes family support navigators. So people who have gone through this before and then have gone through training so that they can help other families. And so they might provide follow-up support in the way of in-person call, like, excuse me, in-person visits, phone calls, letters, or postcards for 30, 60, sometimes 90 days, sometimes until that family can get into treatment, they will have somebody who will just check in and say, hey, is there other support that we can provide for you? How are you doing? So it's this really, it's this intent to be holistic. And it's great because crisis providers have always wanted to do this. It is a really difficult job. And any of your listeners who work in the emergency department or work in very short-term brief intervention treatment know that you would love to know how they're doing afterwards, or you would love to extend a little bit more support, but you're not always able to. Well, now with some of these teams and the way that they're structured and that they're funded, this is embedded into the model. They have incredible outcomes. They're going to talk more about 90, 95% in some cases, diversion rate from ERs and psychiatric hospitals. Now, Leah, you mentioned 
Yeah, you mentioned about about your mobile crisis teams covering all payer types. And that really is part of an ideal model of crisis services is that it would not be specific based on your insurance. Now, here's something that your listeners might not know. If you have access to a Medicaid behavioral health benefit, you have more services available than you do if you have a commercial health plan, if you have Medicare, if you have TRICARE, okay? The Medicaid behavioral health system is responsible for virtually all of the evolutions in treatment for behavioral health and psychiatric emergencies in the past 40 years. Yeah. So, and especially, I mean, I think about other things and like wraparound home-based, I mean, there is nothing like that for private payers. There just isn't. And those families are left floundering. So this is one of those situations where there are some advantages if you are a Medicaid recipient. And I mean, of course, the how you get to Medicaid is being below a certain income level. So that's not great, but it is a good benefit. And I'll tell you, in our in, in my office, I mean, all of my staff knew the mobile crisis number, 3736000, and they had a sticker. And so for listeners that are out there, how do they find out if they have a mobile response team and how they can they access? And is that all based through community mental health or what's the best way to figure that out? Great question. Yes, I think that question is important on two levels. One is what's available for the people that I'm serving. The second is what's available for me or what's available for my family. So to answer the first question, the community mental health services, so they they might be called CMHSPs or CMHCs, depending on what state that you're in, are often responsible for the operation of these mobile crisis teams. Now, one type of team that we haven't talked about yet is the co-responder model. Co-responder models involve a clinician and a police officer or law enforcement. So I would say reaching out to your community mental health center or your local law enforcement to find out if these teams are available. And if they are available, who are they available for are important questions for treatment teams to ask. Now, the next question, and this, and people might not have been expecting homework today, but I'm going to encourage everyone to do this, to take that health insurance card that you have and to turn it over and to look at the explanation of benefits or the customer service number and find out what the behavioral health benefit is that is covered should you or your child or your spouse go into a psychiatric emergency. Because most commercial health plans do not cover mobile crisis teams or some of these other types of services that we're talking about. And they really should. It, well, if I, it I, diverts 90 to 95% of kids out of, I mean, the emergency room, those are expensive They certainly are. And and we've done some modeling at my company at TBD Solutions where we show that you can save upwards of $5,000 if you use these diversion practices and you still get people the treatment that they need, but you do that and unlock facilities. So so if you're in a large city like uh, Chicago, Cincinnati, Detroit, and you can repeat this process over and over again, and you can save $5,000 a day, a couple of times per day, then you're starting to talk about millions of dollars in savings over the course of treatment. Now, a big area that uh, colors this entire conversation is about risk and about managing risk and the concern that providers and payers both carry about what happens to somebody who is in a psychiatric emergency. 
Now, studies show that people with a mental illness are more likely to be a victim of crime than they are to be a perpetrator of crime. And a lot of times we think that we must lock somebody up in a psychiatric hospital, whether that's a private hospital or a state hospital, because they are going to otherwise do something to someone and they're going to cause harm if we don't do that. And unfortunately, our pendulum has swung so far towards managing risk and making sure that nothing bad happens, that good things are not happening in the volume that they should. Well, and I think about a scenario, I mean, not only you're saving $5,000, but you're also saving angst and trauma. I mean, it is very traumatic for people who are in a mental health crisis to be in an emergency room. It's noisy, it's busy. They may not be thrilled that you're there because it taxes their system. They have to have a sitter. They have to strip the room. They have to strip you. I mean, there are so many things that happen. And and I understand why that has to happen. You don't want somebody to try and strangle themselves in your emergency room. It's kind of all or nothing. And if you had a response team that can go out, assess the situation, the majority are not needing that. That's right. It is such a dehumanizing process to be in a room, you know, an observation room, let's say at the emergency department and just have someone stare at you and be instructed not to talk to you, not to do anything else besides keep you safe. It, it is, I can remember a, a time when I was in the emergency department here in the last few years. And just to your points that how my agitation was exacerbated by the bright lights, the noise, the in and out that many people say that the emergency department is not where you want to be having the behavioral health emergency. And so we see there, there are a few emergency departments who are doing this right. And what they're doing is instead of taking somebody off the floor and assigning a sitter to a person to wait for a bed to open, which to truth be told, can sometimes take days or weeks to find a psychiatric hospital bed. They will replace that person, that sitter, with a peer support specialist or a recovery coach. So somebody who has their own personal experiences with mental illness or addiction, who have demonstrated a period of recovery in which they are prepared to help other people. And so imagine how different the healing process or the recovery process could be if you have a trained professional who comes into the room that can say, I've been there. I know what what some of your experience is like. I can't say I know exactly what your experience is like, but what would be helpful? And I think we have diminished the role of social intervention and its power on the healing process for a person who's in crisis. And we need to lean into that more. It's not just about medications. It's not just about a kind of treat them and street them approach. But, you know, Leah, I guess think about this. What, what kind of power do we instill into outpatient therapists who in most states cannot prescribe any types of medications, but they have to work, they have to rely on the power of their words in order to help people. And people heal. Probably millions of people are healing every year by being in a therapeutic relationship with with a counselor, a psychologist, a, a social worker. Why don't we instill or embrace that power that can happen within crisis settings too? Because for most kids who are coming into these settings, it took them days or weeks or months to get to this point of crisis. And it's so ambitious to expect that we can somehow resolve that in a matter of hours. 
Well, and I think oftentimes emergency rooms, especially if somebody is really out of control, aggressive, they may use some pretty intense medications like I am Zyprexa. I mean, I've seen Haldol used and it may help in terms of the patient is no longer doing that. But what does that do? And it really doesn't solve the problem other than a safety issue at the time. So I understand where those things may be necessary, but I mean, it's sort of a chemical restraint probably in some people's mind. So, and on the other hand too, the emergency room staff, I mean, they need the help. So it makes sense in my mind. And I think lots of other people that having mental health folks in the emergency room, and it has to be more than one social worker because that social worker gets stretched thin. I mean, I was in the emergency room with a family member for an accident. And at the same time, there were 16 psychiatric concerns in the ED that, and because of that, and they were essentially tying up rooms because they they were trying to figure out what do we do. And so it was just all backlogged and they're not really getting that great of care. And I'm not, no. and I don't mean that to denigrate emergency room physicians because I don't, I mean, we need them badly, but it's not their role or training. And it's also not something that I think some of them don't have a passion for that because it, they don't feel well-trained or have the resources. People are not getting treatment. They're just getting eyes on, I think. So that's a lot to say that there's lots of different ways to do that. Let's say somebody does get admitted to inpatient, that they meet criteria, they're not safe to go home, and people have made that determination, usually mental health professionals. What happens in an inpatient setting? Because I know that patients go in, they're there for... I don't know, 5, 10, 14 days, maybe maximum. What's the magic that happens or what we think is happening in an inpatient facility? I think that's a great question and one that should be reflected back to the people who have never had to utilize an inpatient facility or never had their families have to utilize it and to understand what their belief is as to why this is the superior way to provide treatment. Now, perhaps they don't believe that it's superior. It's just what's available. But I think that we have an obligation to people, <clears throat> excuse me, who are in a mental health emergency, who many are experiencing one of the worst days of their life, to have a, a robust treatment model. So each of these services that we're talking about, and in this case, we're talking about psychiatric hospital, to have really strong services that are providing meaningful outcomes, high client satisfaction, and aren't spending any more money than we absolutely have to. So that can that could move into to changing how the services are purchased or how they're paid for. But I guess I want to focus on maybe those first two a little bit more. It is understanding the goals of a psychiatric hospital. Is it to make sure nobody dies? Is it to make sure that nobody hurts themselves while they're there? Or is it to actually kind of develop some meaningful life skills that are, going to, that are going to carry on well beyond their stay at the hospital. So my experience working at a psychiatric hospital that the length of stay is usually a minimum of a week, sometimes two weeks. And I can tell you that the advantage, at least where I worked, was so if you've got a child who is going to the psychiatric hospital, 
the ratios of the clinicians that were carrying the caseloads there at the hospital were better for youth than they were for adults. So we wouldn't see more than four to six youth patients assigned to a clinician or a case manager at the hospital. With adults, it could be up to 10 or 12. And you see consistent groups. There's a, there's a requirement at many psychiatric hospitals that there's at least one family session that happens. Sometimes there would be two during the course of that stay. And so they're going to be expected to go to groups throughout the day, psychoeducational groups run by recreational therapists, social workers, and therapists. The nurses may have been running some education groups on medications, but most psychiatric hospitals do not have, do not embrace a recovery model of care. They embrace a medical model of care. And so that means you're looking at the, uh, the deficit, you're addressing the deficit, which is often an illness, instead of talking about recovery as part of perhaps a, a continuous journey that doesn't necessarily just have an endpoint, but kind of goes on. And so that is manifested in focusing more on what the doctors say than what the clinicians say, or even having peer support specialists or recovery coaches. That's a rarity in psychiatric hospitals. It's interesting what you're saying. I'm, and I think that a lot of, I know, work in trauma-informed care, and that is yes. is kind of making the switch from a deficit model to a strengths-based. Let's mm-hmm. talk about what you're good at rather than what you're, quote, bad at. But also, I think of one of my patients, I actually did a podcast with him, and he talked about his journey. The emergency room was a mess. He got bumped around the state because of lack of beds. He was in out of state. But when he was inpatient, he felt it was helpful for him, mostly from staff and nurses. And he said the least helpful were the doctors because they didn't have time for him. So, and again, I'm not denigrating physicians out there, but I think it's important that we hear those voices about, is this meeting your need other than I'm putting out a fire? And Leah, where I always like to look is who are some of the fringe doctors, not the ones that are promulgating like things that are unhealthy or, or not really following the Hippocratic Oath, but who are the ones that kind of take a different approach to their job? Kind of like Patch Adams of sorts, if, if you've seen that movie. Yep. People who are finding a different way to express that love of the work they do and the people that they serve. There is a process, there, there is a approach to psychiatric care that has been gaining momentum that started in Europe about probably 15 or 20 years ago called open dialogue. And open, the premise of open dialogue is that we want to put the patient at the center of our treatment and we want to learn from them and hear from them what exactly they understand to be their problems. And so it levels off the hierarchy where a medical model, the doctor is always sitting at the top and then it's everybody else. But the hierarchy is a lot more flattened and the doctor's approach is taken in consideration with the social worker's approach and the nurses and the the peer support. But they're all sitting in a circle. And the first day that the person's there, they're spending almost an hour just together, almost sitting at the feet of the individual who's in crisis and changing the paradigm to one that is like, we want to be helpful. That's my favorite question in healthcare is how can we be the most helpful? And that's different than how can we best serve ourselves or how can we make sure we go home at five o'clock every day so that we're not late for watching Jeopardy or something like that. Like it is a, it's a servant heart and approach to the work that we're not used to. And let me just say one other thing here. And again, this colors the work that I do. We have been wrong so many times 
in the industry of behavioral health and psychiatric treatment, especially emergency psychiatric treatment, whether it's the lobotomies or the asylums or the ways that we've messed up the institutionalization, we have to imagine that there's something we could be doing better than what we're doing right now. And we're all leaving a legacy here. And why would we want to give people in crisis anything less than our best? Why would we settle for anything less than supreme care? And some of these ideas that I'm talking about, they shouldn't, it, this shouldn't be the mental health lottery. It shouldn't, your area code should not impact what access you have to services. Everybody should know that these are available. And it's kind of a shame if our leaders are not making sure that these services not just exist, but exist with a high level of quality. And, and I think what's available to youth as opposed to adults. I mean, I think about substance use care. I mean, in the state of Michigan, I don't even know if we have detox units for inpatient for youth. And if we're talking about how do we go upstream, I mean, ideally, you don't end up there. Somebody has identified you, maybe your pediatrician did some screening, noticed you were using some substances to feel better, intervened, found some other strategies, helped you decide that maybe I didn't need that opiate kind of thing for a high. And so I never am down the stream. But, you know, for those that are, I mean, they're just, it just feels like we should just tear it down and start over sometimes <laughs> because I mean, there are good, and I know that there are exceptional people. I mean, some of my friends that are child psychiatrists that run inpatient units are exceptional human beings, but a lot of times kids can't get into their spaces because they're full up. And so they're going out of state or they're maybe on an adult unit even that's converted to a couple of peds beds. And for young kids, if there's any aggression, especially like kids with intellectual disabilities or autism, it's even harder to get in because they have to have like one-to-one -one staffing. So sure, sure. I, it's just, it feels like, I feel like I'm putting bricks in the wall going up about how hard it is to get to something that might give me relief. Well, let's talk about some of those barriers. Administrative burden is certainly a deterrent for providers who are well-meaning to deliver this service. So is reimbursement. So are reimbursement rates. <clears throat> so if the state, if your state decides we're only going to pay X amount of money, which I'll give you an example. I've got a friend who's a provider in Louisville, Kentucky, and their rates have not increased for the youth crisis stabilization unit in over 20 years. And their daily rate of reimbursement is $250 per day. So since the early 2000s, I hate to say that 20 years ago was somehow still in the 2000s. I assumed that would definitely bring us back to like 1989 <laughs> or something, right? Right, right. <laughs> but, but 20 years ago, you think of inflation, you think of just the cost of healthcare, and their rates have not increased. And so then you're forcing providers to kind of take a program and have it be a, a loss leader and hope that you can make that up in order to do the important work that's con consistent with your mission. We should not be asking behavioral health professionals to, to live like a servant life at this point. We already know that the pandemic has showed us just how important access to mental health care is. And we should no longer expect professionals, in my opinion, whether it's behavioral health or just nonprofit professionals, to live some kind of less than life in order to make this work. 
But another barrier is related to administrative burden is licensure. So in the state of Michigan, there is a license called CCI, Child Caring Institution. And as a part of that licensure, you cannot do any type of physical intervention on a child. Now, this CCI license was not designed for a crisis service per se, but providers have to follow this. And so if you want to manage risk in your your kid's crisis home and you can't do any type of physical intervention, it can only be verbal, then you're very limited in who you can take or what you can do if a child escalates. Now, there are great trainings out there like Man Man DT, I believe, that um, help to equip providers in those verbal and physical interventions and to do so safely and in a humane way. But we've essentially disincentivized the entire provider network of delivering these services. And so the service type that I'm talking about in Michigan is called crisis residential. So we have about 18 or 20 crisis residential homes in the state of Michigan for adults. We have two for youth in the state of Michigan because the providers, they can't sustain it. They're either going to get a recipient right substantiation for trying to do the right thing to keep a kid safe, even though it goes against the licensing agreements, or they're not going to accept anybody. And in a fee-for-service environment, you have to keep your beds full. If you don't, you're not going to stay open. So the concept or the model of these services is sound and should be replicated and should be available to children all across the state that that you practice in. And yet we run into these barriers that unfortunately have not been resolved. And honestly, I don't think in the interest of safety to keep these extreme administrative burdens, are you helping kids? Because you're just then sending them to the ED waiting for a psych hospital bed to open up when there's so much more that could be offered to them. So this is so interesting because what you're saying is there's so much hue and cry, like there's no beds. So there are beds that might be available, but because of restrictions that don't necessarily make sense. I mean, I understand that you don't want a child to be thinking our heads like strapped down in leather restraints but maybe that there's something between that and a verbal de-escalation. But if that's what the licensure says, then you can't use the services that you have. So then the funds go away, the beds go away, and now you're stuck with inpatient beds and there's not enough to meet the crisis needs. So it sounds like a big mess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a complex problem, okay? When you hear this argument that says, We need more psych hospital beds. I push back and I say, you might need some, okay? You might need 10% of what you're talking about. What you really need is a crisis continuum. What you need is adequate numbers of youth crisis residential beds and MRSS teams and psychiatric urgent care centers for kids. You need more services. I agree with that. But there are also psychiatric hospital beds that are Um, not even opened in certain units of hospitals. So they've mothballed a quarter of their hospital because of staffing issues. They can't find enough nurses to staff it or they have to meet a threshold. It's a business for most uh, psych hospitals that like they have to keep their beds full in order to get paid. And they might staff in, um, in counts of 25. So if you have a hundred bed hospital and you've been noticing the last couple months, you've been getting 77, 78, 82 census, but you're not getting up to that 100, 
Well, it might be more financially or fiscally responsible for you to just cap it at 75 than to keep a hundred open when you've got to have X number of nurses and techs that are there instead. So it's it, there's things that are there that are not being used and they're not being used because there's restrictions on their use. It sounds like kind of chasing your tail. I mean, if you had a magic wand and somebody said, okay, Travis, here's a gazillion dollars <laughs> and you could do a makeover. I mean, where would you start? I mean, what would be, I mean, okay, I'm handing you the magic wand, go. I love that question. And I, and it's very relevant for me because I have three daughters and they are between second grade and seventh grade. So this, these are formative years and times when my children or their peers could very easily be accessing these kinds of services. I would start with home-like settings that are not requiring full out threat to themselves or other people. And we, and this is actually a strength of the youth continuum is that in a, you have crisis residential homes, but you also have respite homes and respite is something that can happen unexpectedly. Like, oh, things have escalated. We need respite, but it can also be scheduled, right? So you might have kids who are, um, the family just knows that like, if they can be somewhere else for one weekend a month, this whole system works so much better, this whole ecosystem within our house. So I would start to make sure that those services were available, that as much as I can, I'm preserving choice and freedom and agency in some of these settings, would staff them with people who don't necessarily have experience in the mental health system, but are just compassionate and creative and thoughtful people that would enjoy being around kids. And we have to also celebrate or encourage people working in these facilities to bring their own beauty into the process. So I would make sure that there are enough like artists and musicians and creatives that are working with kids. And I would not like 30 years ago, Leah, I've heard stories of my friends that have worked in some of these settings. Now this is with adults, but 30 years ago, people would both be in this crisis home and they'd be going to the movies as a group, like on Tuesday night. So I wouldn't take this mentality that just because you're not an imminent risk yourself doesn't mean that it's time to discharge. Like I would embrace this concept that like, no, healing is healing takes a while. I think managed care has put a lot of barriers into this. And that's, those are the ones I'm trying to strip away as I answer your question is, gosh, what would I do? If we really had kind of all the time in the world, but I would look more like a few weeks to a month of time to do some true social rehabilitation and to rely on the power of caring people, not just on medical professionals, but caring people in the healing process. It's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about, I mean, I know there were lots of problems, but you know, back in the day, way back in Kalamazoo, for example, I mean, there was a whole, like, like a community. I mean, people went and worked in gardens and they had a whole economy. Now, unfortunately, I think some of those people were used in other ways that wasn't, but I mean, the idea about sort of a place of beauty. And I think that there is some history of that when people were thinking about these sort of institutions that it didn't happen that way, but there was some thought to have a place that was beautiful and restorative, I think. I don't know. Am I off base or is that a thing? 
No, that, I don't think you're off base at all. And the early asylums, asylum for me has a negative connotation. And I don't think of it as much with like political asylum as I do with a mental institution. But asylum does mean safety. It means refuge. And before asylums were overcrowded, they were intended, I think they were also called like sanitariums, but they were intended to be these places where people could go and take the time that they needed to heal and they could garden and they could be at peace. Why do we continue to carry around this notion that people with mental illness deserve like less than optimal care or that there's this us and them kind of mentality? What would happen that this word respite is used in the treatment continuum? And Leah, you and I were talking about vacations recently. What would happen if we couldn't take those? What, what would happen if we were just nose to the grindstone 52 weeks a year, no holidays, no, maybe even no weekends? Like, what would that do for our mental health? We take these things proactively and we're not, we're not questioned about taking a vacation, going on a trip. But yet when we create an environment that doesn't look like a psychiatric hospital and we're like, no, we think there's like some healing and some relief that needs to take place for these individuals, then there's a, a response from the community sometimes that's like, well, that's too soft. Or like, what, why should we have to pay for that? Why should tax dollars be used for that? I don't know what, what the roads are more important than like people's like health and sanity. <laughs> I'm, maybe, maybe I'm going off on, a, on an extreme here, but I can't imagine anything that's more important than that. And We've all had a worst day of our lives. Did we get what we needed in those moments? If we didn't, what could have been different? And do we believe that helping people in their darkest hour is going to be good for everybody? I believe that it is. Yeah, and I think about, I just, a few podcasts back, did one with Natasha Robinson. It's a mom. Her son has, he's on the autism spectrum, has had some really difficult behaviors. And for her, it just, she just, She's on all the time. I mean, there is very little respite. And and were it a perfect world, there would be support for her because it's a hard job. And I mean, and, and she's got lots of services that have been through community mental health. It's not that, but it's still not meeting the needs. So, I yeah, I mean, I think it's trying to sp spend money in true safety nets and more than just a net. I mean, it's sort of more like a safety nest, like a soft landing. It's warm. It's cozy. You, your needs are met until you're able to, you know, leave the nest and because you're strong and able to do that. And well, this feels like this could be a very long conversation and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I think more than that is your your compassion about the way that you are talking about people who are suffering. I mean, this is, it's suffer, it's distress, it may despair. So, you know, the systems that we've built, when you lock the door, that's hard. And I understand the intention is safety, but it, is it really is it working? Does it buy some time? And I know for families, and I've talked to several families with older kids, I mean, that's a whole nother thing is as a parent, how do you access services for an adult kid who's psychotic when you don't have permission to even talk to some, I mean, that gets really messy. So there are some advantages to youth, but I just love that 
I just, the way that you're thinking about this compassionate servant, I think is the word that you've used. And so I hope that you get a magic wand. <laughs> I would be, I would humbly accept a magic wand and, and hope that I would do something responsible and good for everybody with that opportunity. So in closing, if you have advice for my pediatric colleagues, when they are working with a family that there may be a lot of chaos. They, these are the families that keep coming back and you're just like, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, what are your kind of like, what are some words of hope and suggestions that you might have for clinicians when they're thinking about what else? How do I meet these needs? Because it's not all about medication. I mean, meds have a place and can be mm-hmm. helpful, but it, I don't know. The longer I was in practice, the more it was like, it was, it became a less and less intervention. Yeah. And it's a hard place for your patients, or your clients to be in. But often thought this about youth because they just have such less control of their environment than adults do. You know, if they're, if their stressors are largely from their parents or their siblings, then they don't have a lot that they can control. And I think that's worth exploring. So I guess I would say to to your listeners, doing some, I'm a big proponent of acceptance and commitment therapy. And so doing some work around uh, almost a variation on the, the, (laughs) it's escaping me right now, but being able to, the, the serenity prayer, being able to know what you can control and what you can't and trying to discern and have some wisdom to know the difference in those areas. And But my other call to action beyond just like what you can do in the conversation is to become active. Some of these systems are only going to change if we uh, take an active role and do something about that. So getting involved in a trade association or in a committee like your statewide suicide prevention coalition to find out what you can do to be meaningful. I mean, I'm a licensed professional counselor. I never thought that I would be using my license in a macro level consultative setting. but We need people to do unconventional things in order to make the change that we want to. So I think it's about finding like-minded people, whether it's fellow medical professionals or clinicians and, and starting to get involved and speak up about what is needed and don't just expect the status quo to just continue to serve you. My experience too, is that mental health professionals have been very eager and embracing when I've reached out and said, hey, could we partner up? I mean, I've been very supported and people really happy to have me at the table. So whether it's community mental health. So for clinicians that are out there, whether you're family medicine, pediatrics, nurse practitioner, PA, is find, make some friends with some therapists in the community, call your community mental health, invite them to your practice. If you're an Academy of Pediatrics member, there is a new council that's forming called, I believe it'll be the Council on Healthy Emotional and Mental Development. And that'll be a place where you can join. And I this is, will be a home for this advocacy. Pediatricians were at the Hill advocating for some of these new mental health bills to bring more monies into the schools and to support our child psychiatry access programs so we can support each other. So that call to action, there are things we can do. And I think it's probably not easy, but I think often we're just like so overwhelmed. You just kind of you do what you do what you can do and then you just kind of like hope that you don't have to do anymore because it's too hard but that there may be ways to change change is always an option right that's right 
Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that you're out there in the world. And I hope that you reach out to pediatricians because we love to partner up and we're what is the, we're not political, we're unabashedly pro-child. So I like to think of it that way. Well, thanks so much for your time and so glad that our paths crossed. Yeah, I'm so glad that you've created this space and thanks for inviting me into it. Take care. I love the conversations that happen with guests when I could go on for hours because they're just so interesting and have so many fascinating things to say, and really important things. So here are my takeaways for today. Number one, of course, thank you. And I so appreciate Travis's passion and, as he said, agape for the populations he serves and cares about. Number two, historically, the current state of crisis intervention is built on the medical model and is really not designed to meet the need. Think 911, law enforcement, EMS, and emergency departments. All are currently struggling with the demand for mental health services because they really weren't set up for that. Number three, the experience for patients who seek crisis mental health services is often dehumanizing and the settings and response may actually agitate or worsen the crisis. It's not intentional, but it's just what the resources allow. Locked up, they may have a sitter who's instructed not to speak to them, no phone, no clothes, feels like no rope feels like no rights. It is understood that this is not the intention, but it is the experience. Number four, there is now a paradigm shift underway, patient-centered to preserve choice, agency, and freedom. We all want that. Number five, here are some of the services that do meet patients where they are. 988, the new suicide crisis lifeline. Mobile response and stabilization services are also known as MRSS. Co-responders, that is a mental health professional that shows up when there's a police officer. Peer support, recovery coaches, and upstream integrated behavioral health, which I am always recommending. Number six, mobile response teams mitigate, de-escalate, and coordinate follow-up care and actually reduce emergency room visits by up to 90 to 95%. I mean, that's just incredible. And those that are paying for these services should sit up and take notice. I mean, think about that. Why on earth doesn't every community have this resource? There are only 500 teams nationally. Number seven, there is huge pushback often based on risk. Will this person kill themselves or someone else? That's the premise sometimes when we put folks behind locked doors. If you only have the risk hammer, everything else looks like a nail. Number eight, what should the goal of inpatient hospitalizations look like? No death, no self-harm, or maybe skills building. Number nine, when a patient enters a psychiatric facility, it may be the worst day for them. Consider instead open dialogue models that have the patient at the center driving the services. Asking, what do you see as the problem versus let me fix what's wrong with you? Number 10, barriers can reside in licensure limitations that don't allow for a full range of treatments, even if it means careful and thoughtful restraint, which is always a last resort. So as a result, beds are not full. But is the answer really more beds? Maybe different beds, crisis beds, 
residential, respite, with scheduled relief for families that are staffed by compassionate caregivers. They may be mental health trained, but could they be artists and musicians? Number 11, we have been wrong so many times and we must do better now. Anything less than, as Travis put it, supreme care is just not acceptable. Number 12, and what about us and our attitudes? We signed up to serve the needs of the suffering, all suffering. We need to stand up for them. Number 13, lead with a servant heart and consider the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that can be changed, and the wisdom to know the difference. Number 14, Namaste. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, I hope that this sparks some interest and maybe a little bit of a shift in how you approach patients with mental health needs. I mean, again, they really do need us and we can be the change. So as always, go out there in the world, keep doing the things that you're doing. Would love to hear from you and you can find me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown, Twitter at Leah Gugino, and Facebook, Dr. Leah Gugino. Take care and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.